This evening you have completed the first day of the retreat. And for many of you, especially those of you who are new, um, there are ways in which it's arduous. Um, we're not used to sitting still. We're used to keeping ourselves busy or moving or engaged or distracted or all those things that we do. And it's sort of like some rushing mountain stream that all of a sudden hits the bottom of the mountain and you realize how much sediment there is in the stream as it starts to drop out. And so some of you may even be wondering, now why am I doing this? In nine days I could have gone to Maui or Kauai, you know, or Cancun or somewhere else. So tonight is an introduction to the theme that we'll speak about through the course of the retreat, but also as an introduction to the heart of what we've gathered to do, I want to speak about the arc of and the mandala of the Noble Eightfold Path. And as the story is told, a long time ago when you were much younger than you are now, the Buddha wandered after his great enlightenment under the Bodhi tree to find those whom he could teach and went on foot to, outs, to the deer park outside of Varanasi or Benares and sat down under a great tree there with several, five handful of the yogis who he had practiced with over many years. And he turned, as the metaphor goes, he turned the wheel of the Dharma which is to say he offered the teachings of liberation from his realization. He sat with him and he said, the eye of wisdom, the heart of understanding, the knowledge and insight and vision that is possible has awakened in me, and I am free. Quite a claim to make. And I would like to pass this understanding so that you too might be free. O nobly born, begin many of the Buddhist texts, which is why this word, the noble eightfold path or noble silence, is used. It speaks of the nobility of spirit, of every human being. And we see it, we celebrate it when Nelson Mandela walks out of 27 years in Robben Island prison with such dignity and magnanimity and graciousness and forgiveness, that not only does he transform South Africa, but in many ways transforms the imagination of the world. That there is in you, says the Buddha, a dignity and nobility, and that is why this is called the noble path, to awaken that in yourself. And he taught, as he turned the wheel of the Dharma, suffering, the Four Noble Truths, that human incarnation, in case you hadn't noticed, has praise and blame, has gain and loss, has pleasure and pain, has fame and disrepute, has sweet and sour and light and dark. It is the play of the opposites. It has birth and death. And nobody experiences... Does anybody have anything other than that? Raise your hand. You can have your money back. Said So that pain, loss, um, change, uh, blame, and so forth are part of human experience, suffering, pain, as much as is joy and gain and praise 
Um, and they alternate. And this is incarnation. He said, but there is a suffering for us human beings when we don't see and understand how to live in this changing world of gain and loss and praise and blame. There's an end to this suffering when we understand its cause, the cause being clinging, grasping, resistance, wanting it to be some other way. When we understand the cause, then we come to what the Buddha called in the Third Noble Truth, the, for the sure heart's release, the liberated heart, the noble heart of the awakened one, which is you. And that awakened heart has, there are, turns, turns out in the text in the Buddha's language, there are dozens of names for that. The subtle, the, the peaceful, the supreme, inner safety, non-distress, the pure heart, freedom, the shelter, the island, the deathless, the beyond, the unconditioned, the highest happiness. So he looked at these folks that sat in front of him and said, this is possible for you. That in the ever-changing circumstances of the world, those outer circumstances are not what make you happy. They will for a little while. There's a certain kind of pleasure. But the deepest happiness doesn't come from outer circumstances because they're subject to change. And if we cling with greed and fear and hatred and aversion and misunderstanding, suffering arises. But there is a way to liberate ourselves, our human spirit. And someone came to speak to the Buddha and said, beings in this world are lost in the stream, the rushing torrent of becoming, of reaction, of drowning, of wanting, of clinging. Is there not an island? Is there not a place? Is there not a way to be in this ever-changing world that is free from the turbulence of the stream of beings who are lost in the river of rush and birth and death and gain and loss and praise and blame and fear. Sir, tell me, where is such an island? And the Buddha replied, I will tell you, there is such an island, an island that you cannot go beyond. And I didn't used to like this metaphor because it seemed separate from the world, but then I began to understand it more deeply. And this island is the place of non-possession, non-attachment, non-grasping. It is the end of death and fear and confusion, and I call it liberation. And there are those people who, dwelling in mindful awareness, have realized this and are liberated here and now. And so I speak of it, that this might be so for you. Then the question comes, all right, that sounds good. Perhaps, anyway. Um, how do we do it? How do we find ease, peace, joy, freedom of heart, um, fearlessness, courage? 
dignity, nobility in this world that is both beautiful and terrifying, that's magnificent and also full of tragedy, and unbearable beauty and great loss. And the fourth noble truth, the Buddha said, not only is there liberation, but there is a path to liberation, the noble path. And I offer this to you, the Eightfold Path. Sometimes it's called the Noble Path or the Wise Path, and the steps are called the Wise Action or Wise Intention or Wise Understanding or Right Action, Right Speech, Right Understanding, or maybe just Noble speech, noble understanding. And it's called the middle path because what the Buddha discovered was that he'd lived this great life of pleasure, but somehow that wasn't satisfying to his heart completely as he grew older. And then he tried the opposite, all right, if the world is in, is in some way not satisfying by having pleasure over and over, I will become a yogi. And as you know in the story, then they tried to run away from the world and deny themselves and fast and beds of nails and all these kind of ascetic practices and reject life. But that also was unsatisfying. And then on the night of his awakening, he took his seat in the center of this human life, this human incarnation. And rather than resist or grasp, he said, let me awaken to the way things are and see if there's a liberation to be found in this world as it is. And what he found was the island which was described there. The island which there is no going beyond, which is awareness itself. There's nothing outside of awareness. And when he shifted his focus from trying to get the right sound and sight and taste and smell and feeling in the body and experience all those things to resting in awareness itself, mindful awareness, then he discovered that that was the gateway to the liberated heart. And it's important even as I speak about mindful awareness because it can sound detached and distant like the island itself, that maybe a better translation is loving awareness. That the middle path neither removes you from the world nor gets you lost in it. It is the capacity to be present and open and loving. In this great paradox, T.S. Eliot said, teach us to care and not to care. To be able to be present and to love but without grasping, without holding on, without confusion, to see things the way they are and keep the heart open and the mind clear and to rest in awareness itself as the dance of life pours itself out through you moment by moment, neither rejecting the world nor getting lost in it. You become the Buddha. You become the awakened one with infinite compassion and tenderness and connection, and also the sense of freedom. Now, how do we do this? This is the 
eightfold path that was offered, and it has three dimensions, a dimension of wisdom, a dimension of cultivation, and a dimension of embodiment, or understanding, cultivation, and embodiment. And this path leads us to a release from the inner and outer conditioning of our life. Because you sit here and all you have to do is sit for one sitting and you see the madness of the mind that it, you know, it's like being stuck in a motel six room late at night with the TV on. The remote won't turn it off and it's on like the shopping channel or something like that. And it just does reruns, you know. And you, you know, you've been sitting all day watching it, right? And it just repeats over and over and they're not even necessarily programs that you ever wanted to watch initially, and they keep repeating. And so you see the conditioning, the conditioning of grasping and fear and confusion um, that the culture and your own life has brought you to, and we get lost in that conditioning. But how do we step out of that conditioning to the unconditioned? Am I gorgeous? My child asks, drawing the word out like pulled taffy. Yes, I say you are. The pink and teal dress is probably made of some highly flammable material, some chemist approximation of tulle and satin. Pudgy fingers decorated with pink polish trace the sequins on the bodice. I love this. A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, I say you are. Thick blonde hair, blue eyes, rosy cheeks, flawless skin. This child is the American epitome of beauty. This child, my son. He's four years old and prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase, maybe not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to playing with toy tractors. Not because it matters to me, it doesn't but because I'm already hearing in my head the name-calling he will face in kindergarten and for years. Many adults already seem disturbed by the dresses. Strangers utter awkward apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseball, trucks, and trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulder. Am I beautiful, he asks. And I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheek, always. And I read it, and of course, as you listen too, I could weep. Because we are born with nobility and beauty and innocence. And then there's the culture and the conditioning and how we're supposed to be. And we internalize all that stuff. And you sit here with it. The inner critic, have you noticed it today? You know, and the ideas of how you're supposed to be meditating. So how do we step out of the power of that conditioning and find for ourselves the liberated heart? For ourselves, in the life we live, with the people that we love, with this earth that we care about so much. How do we live from the wise heart of the Buddha. So the recipe or the invitation or the description 
is the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's not linear. It's not like the, you know, step one, step two, step three. It is more a mandala. It is a description, a mandala as a circle, of the eight dimensions of awakened living. And as you listen, you can sense that it's not some other place. The path doesn't go from here to there. The path goes from there to here. And my teacher Ajahn Shah said the real Eightfold Path is two eyes, two nostrils, two ears, mouth or tongue, and the body. It's the actual life that we live. This is the Eightfold Path, if you want to find it. As you sit, as you walk, you are the Eightfold Path. Now the first step in this description of the mandala, not the first step of the path because it is a circle and each part deepens as we know. The first expression of this noble path is called wise understanding. And wise understanding is first the understanding that liberation is possible. That in this stream of becoming and being lost, there is an island, there is a refuge, there is a place not going beyond, which is awareness itself. Helen Keller writes, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. And to know that you can be free is the most extraordinary thing, and the most wondrous thing. So wise understanding realizes that it's possible and that it doesn't mean to turn away from the world, but actually to turn toward this mystery of life with an awakened heart, to see it with an awakened heart. Poem for you by Ellen Bass. If you knew you'd be the last, sorry, called if you knew, what if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them and giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, to brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease carefully. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They'd just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? And so the liberated understanding to see the tentativeness of life and to sense what really matters, which is our ability to love, to be awake, to be free, and not caught in that whirlwind of the stream. What really matters? 
to do so means, with this wise understanding, not turning away from the world, but taking our seat in the middle of this mystery, under our tree of enlightenment, to bear witness to and sit in the midst of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. As James Baldwin says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so if we don't do this, we project it on the immigrants, the communists, the Muslims, the, you know, l'ennemi du jour. You know who that is, whoever. Because we can't bear our own insecurity. And yet, we are insecure beings. How close does the dragon spume have to come? But if we are dignified and take that seat, the noble seat in the midst of it all, we enter the reality of liberation by doing so. And immediately, the understanding that we've always had that's been at the edges of our view shows itself. One day, writes Alice Walker, when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I run, laughed, and I cried, and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. And there is a knowing in us of what is freedom. And when we take our seat, we begin to inhabit that understanding. We also know that it doesn't happen by accident. And I don't have to say that to you because you sat here all day with yourself, I'm sorry to say, right? <laughs> and so you see all the conditioning. Several years ago, I was leading a retreat at our center on the East Coast at IMS in Barrie. And this woman came and she said she hated walking meditation. Just couldn't do it. Made her antsy, nothing happened. And so I said, walk slowly. Try walking faster. Close your eyes for a few steps and just feel your feet. Walk backward. Close your eyes and walk backward. You know, make it interesting, right? Pretend you're walking on the edge of the Grand Canyon. She tried all that stuff, not, you know, hated it. I said, well, there's one remedy finally. Don't sit and just walk all day, and you'll figure out how to do it. She bargained, whined, and we agreed half a day. Okay. She left the note. Dear Jack, long walking meditation, assignment completed, thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant, but circumstances taught me more. I chose to walk in the low annex walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing noisy boots. <laughs> well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman paced and pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop, except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. 
I tried metta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. <laughs> and I stood there noting, hating, hating. Yeah. Then I stood in the middle of the room and cried. Finally, I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his and not mine. And after that, I got quiet, and he became just sound. And so I walked and breathed, and he paced and pounded, and pretty soon it was all the same to me, his noise, my breath, the movement of my body. And after an hour and a half or so, he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different but not as much better as I would have expected, mostly just different. I think I learned something. Thank you. So this is the, this is the wise um, understanding that it doesn't happen by accident, but it happens by giving ourselves to the experience of the moment, by actually becoming present for what's here in this marvelous circumstance of the retreat. And it doesn't matter if it's noisy or quiet. Or, I mean, it's going to do everything. And if the outside doesn't do everything, you know what has no pride. Your own mind, right? And, and it will do everything squared. And you take your seat with this understanding and realize that you can sit with a wise and deep listening to the play of life experience itself. So along with wise understanding, which you find in yourself as you sit, as you walk, there's also wise intention. And we'll be talking about all these more, so I'm just giving you the expression of what you can initially sense in this noble path. And wise intention, in, any, in certain ways, asks a question. We had this Zen master who came to the three-month retreat we teach every year, Barry at IMS, from Nine Mountains Monastery in Korea. He didn't teach mindfulness. and he said, In fact, he said to all these people who'd been sitting doing mindfulness practice for a long time, oh, no good, you know, waste your time. And he took his Zen stick and he just pounded it on the front where he was sitting and he said only one question, what is this? What is this, this life? Who am I? What is this? And wise intention is really the intention to find out for yourself, to be open, to discover what is possible, your own dignity, your own freedom, your own nobility. It's an openness to see what's true um, and not just follow your habits. It's a kind of courage. After his church was bombed, Martin Luther King said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, and we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process. And there's something in that spirit of intention that says, I am here to awaken. I dedicate myself to this, not by accident, but by 
directing attention itself to this mystery of life with an openness. And then there is the cultivation part of the Eightfold Path, the expression of the cultivated heart or mind. There is what's called wise effort or wise energy. And what is wise effort on this retreat? As you sat today, you made the effort to come back to the breath, or as you walked to notice your steps, or as you ate to become mindful of your food, or doing your work meditation, chopping the carrots, or sweeping the floor. And wise effort, it's not the effort to make something happen or have some special state happen. Sometimes it happens that way, and that's very cool. But I remember going back to my teacher, Ajahn Chah, after I'd gone to this Burmese monastery and done a a long, more than a year silent retreat, all these samadhi states and insights and stuff. And I came back and I told him about all this stuff. And he listened very appreciatively, said, it's great. He said, something else to let go of. That was his response. How about being here now where you are? So wise effort isn't the effort to get something or have something happen. It is the effort to be present here and now in the reality of this moment to actually be here. So it doesn't matter so much what happens. Up and down, praise and blame, gain and loss. Breath comes in and out. Sometimes it hurts in the body. Sometimes there's joy and delight in the body. Then it hurts again later. Then more joy comes. It's the energy and the effort to be present. And I carry with me sometimes this poster that I love of Vedran Smolovich, who was the cellist of Sarajevo. And in the Balkan War in Yugoslavia, when it became Bosnia and Croatia and so forth, in the 90s, for three years, Sarajevo, this magnificent international city, was besieged. And the only way to get in and out was by helicopter. And there were snipers and mortar fire. And the half a million, million residents of the city were you know, both terrorized and being killed. And Vedran, who had been a cellist in the National Symphony, this is him playing in the bombed-out National Library, would put on his tux, take a folding chair and his cello, and go out to the squares where people had been shot and play music so that the people of Sarajevo wouldn't give up hope. That's a practice, you know, an amazing. And then I saw this beautiful video um, of Joan Baez, who flew into Sarajevo during that blockade through a UN helicopter. And she went and she got a folding chair and Vedran played for her and then she sang to him. It was a really amazing, beautiful video. So wise effort or energy is the effort to be present for what is here, this breath long, short, deep, this movement of attention, this having lost it, this judging mind, this pain in the hip or the back, this memory of some unfinished business of the heart that comes, 
this longing, this beautiful light at the end of the day, this tiredness as you sit here, this listening to the story, this sensing the mystery of being alive. It is the capacity to be present which has dignity and nobility in it. Now it's also true, as you practice, as you inhabit this nobility, that it is, how do we say, what's the right word? Flighty. A man wrote to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my 2009 taxes. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> you understand, yes? So you show up, and then you know, you're off in Chicago, you know, planning some family gathering or you know, selling pork bellies or whatever you do in Chicago or you're off in Maui, or you're back in 1978, or 1995, or off in 2014, something. You know what the mind does. And so yes, there is the coming into the reality of the present. And there's also with this a deep sense of trust, that what you're doing is coming back to who you really are, to the space of awareness, to the island beyond which there is no going. The awareness that includes everything, to rest in awareness. And yeah, sometimes doubt comes, and you know, attention wanders and conditioning comes and so forth. And that's just part of the game. But some very deep trust that you are returning to your own true nature. A visitor to the country cottage of Niels Bohr, one of the greatest physicists ever, noticed a horseshoe hanging on the wall and teased the eminent scientist about this ancient superstition. Can it be that you, of all people, believe it will bring you luck, you as a physicist and a scientist? Of course not, replied Bohr, but I understand it brings you luck whether you believe it or not. <laughs> and so sometimes it will make sense you know, and you'll think, oh, I'm doing this noble thing. And in other moments, you'll think, let me out of here. Why am I doing this? This is crazy. Look at these people walking around. It's the night of the living dead, right? That's <laughs> what the kids say about it, you know. Or my knees are killing me. Or I just, I can't find a breath and, and so forth. And you just say, here we are in the midst of this life. And that's the wise, awakened, noble energy and then with it comes wise mindfulness. And mindfulness is the most wondrous of all things. We'll also call it loving awareness. And you can feel it from the very beginning. It is the capacity to open and be present, to see clearly and to receive with love this mysterious life. This is your awakening. This is your Buddha nature. And sometimes there's grief, and you shed your tears, and that's the way grief is. 
the Lakota Sioux Indians said that grief was holy. It was valued. It brought people closer to the gods. And a person who suffered a great loss or was weeping was considered the most holy or wakanan. Other people would ask them to pray on their behalf because their prayers were considered to be valuable. So tears come and tears are like this. Grief is like this. Some people are afraid of joy. They get happy. Well, it won't last or that's not spiritual or whatever. You have to let yourself open to the tears, open to the, the joy, open to the fear that comes. Hafez, the poet, writes, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. I may have used that last night. Don't surrender your loneliness, he writes, so quickly. Let it cut more deeply. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. So you take your seat, and this is fear and loneliness and longing, and this is self-judgment and criticism. The judging mind. You shouldn't judge. Stop <laughs> judging. It's a bad thing, you know? And you say that to yourself, I hate this judgment, but what's that? Julia Childs, two sets of instructions. If you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can just pick it up, who's gonna know? <laughs> Same with your breath, right? Or her other instruction, in department stores, so much unnecessary kitchen equipment is bought indiscriminately by people who had just come in for men's underwear, <laughs> right? And the mind is like that, it will do anything, you know, and then you say, yeah, thank you for your opinion. That's the judging mind. Thank you. You know whose voice that is. Thank you for your opinion. And then another breath. And then it says, let's go shopping. Thank you. And then another breath. And you just take your seat. And mindfulness is the capacity to rest in loving awareness and say, isn't this interesting? Or I hate this. And isn't hating this interesting? And I'm not very mindful. And isn't judging interesting? And I'm not doing very well. Oh, isn't condemning interesting? You know? And when will the sitting be over? Isn't impatience interesting? And then you feel a few more breaths. And I was recently at a conference at Berkeley, um, at the law school, where my daughter is just finishing her third year doing human rights law. So I was a very proud papa um, on mindfulness in the law. And there were lawyers, judges, um, professors, people from all around the country. And one person talked about how when he was appointed to sit on the bench as a judge, he said, oh, I'd been practicing mindfulness meditation for a long time. And when they told me I was going to sit, I said, oh, I know how to do that. <laughs> and so this is his instruction to the jury. I want you to listen to what will be presented in this courtroom with total attention. You may find it helpful to sit in a posture that embodies dignity and presence and stay in touch with the feeling of your breath moving in and out of your body as you listen to the evidence. Be aware of the tendency for your mind to jump to conclusions before all the evidence has been presented and the final arguments made. As best you can, continually try to suspend judgment and simply witness with your full being everything that's pre being presented in the courtroom moment by moment. If you find your attention wandering, 
you can always bring it back to your breathing or to what you're hearing over and over if necessary. When the presentation of evidence is complete, then it will be your turn to deliberate together as a jury and come to a decision, but not before. And it was kind of wild and refreshing to hear this federal judge talk like that, you know. And yet you can hear it, this is what you are doing. You're taking the seat of your own mindful attention and saying, yes, this too. And there's a, there's a, a liberation and a beauty in it. Because the mind does all these things and the body does all these things, you know, and it, attention goes over everywhere. And you bring it back, the images of training the puppy, sit, stay. The puppy doesn't stay very long, goes away, sit, stay again. You don't want to beat the puppy. It doesn't make the puppy very happy, nor you very happy. But you just see what's so. And there's something so profoundly liberating and awakening to be in the presence of the way things are, with loving awareness, with the heart and mind open. So my friend Tamara Engel, who died of cancer, wrote in her last months, my days are short and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now even as I face my death. And this is the dignity of mindfulness and the liberation of it. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration or unification or steadiness, quieting the mind, steadying ourselves, training the puppy, if you will. You take your seat in the midst of all things, And you stay. And it's an amazing thing because our, our attention in this culture is so scattered. But to see deeply, to come back to your dignity and nobility requires a steadying and a collecting and a different kind of attention than what we are used to. The attention that's here and now. You say, well, that's not interesting, you know. But there's got to be something better. Isn't there a new channel I can go to? And maybe I'll take a long walk in the desert and find something interesting to see. You know, We get bored or lonely. If you're lonely or bored or restless, great. Be bored. Do it right. Because otherwise, when you're home and you're lonely or bored, what do you do? Open the refrigerator, right? Turn on you know, the computer. Call somebody, because you, know, you can't be with yourself. So if, if you're bored, you're great. Be bored. Be lonely. Let yourself take the seat with some dignity. The great painter Paul Cezanne averred that he didn't need to take a vacation from painting his famous still lifes of fruit. He said, I get all the excitement I can stand from moving my easel over six inches one way or the other. And it says something about the quality of his attention to that pear or that rose, or that pomegranate, or that persimmon, or whatever it was that he was painting. 
um, that if you look deeply, life becomes illuminated for you. And this is the collection and steadying of the heart. And it's both with the breath and the outer senses, but I'm using this phrase loving awareness because what we pay attention to, somehow we also bring our love to. Bill Moyers did a television series some years ago on dying, called Dying on Our Own Terms. And the production crew was, you know, a young group of cameramen, lights people, sound people, all that. But they were going to be in the presence of these dying people. And many of them had never been with someone who died, quite young. And so he asked Frank Ostaseski, the friend who helped start Zen Center Hospice, to do a training. And Frank knew it wasn't just going to be about learning to meditate. They were filmmakers, right? Forget that. Um, they hadn't come for that. So he sat down with them and talked about what they'd be in the presence of for a little bit. And he said, here, let me show you. And he passed around a set of eight and a half by 11 black and white photographs taken by a very fine photographer in the Zen Center Hospice over the year. And the faces and emaciated bodies of the people who'd passed through there and then died. He passed them around and everybody got one photograph. And then he led a kind of gentle introduction and meditation about what it meant to be in the presence of death and a little bit of how these people had died. And they each got to sit in the presence of the picture and look into the eyes of that person and imagine what it was like for a while, knowing that person was dying. And at a certain point he said, all right, now pass your picture on to the person on the right to kind of rotate the pictures. Nobody wanted to let go of their picture because they'd fallen in love with the person in front of them. You know, because there's something so powerful and compelling about bringing your attention in a steady way to the, the nest of the cactus wren or the step you take, or your niece or nephew, or the eyes of someone in the photograph. Um, and this coming together, it unifies body and heart and mind. In this amazing way, it awakens your Buddha nature. So these are the inner cultivations of the Eightfold Path that are really returning back to the present, to the energy to be present, the mindful awareness, the loving awareness that says, yes, this is life as it is, free. And the steadiness of the unifying of body, heart, and mind, which is love as much as it is anything else. And then the last part of the Eightfold Path, of this mandala of awakening, is the embodied part. Right speech, right livelihood, right action. These different steps are wise speech, wise action, wise action, wise livelihood. And I'll just talk a little about them. You'll hear about these more too. And they're not, again, prescriptive of, okay, you do this and you get that. They're the expressions of dignity, of liberated heart, 
of understanding. So why speech? It's an amazing thing. It says, when we use our words, this mystery of language, here I flap my tongue and compress the air in my lungs, right, and make sounds that vibrate the air here, and it hits the little drum. You've got a drum in there. So you're all drummers, actually. And then the little, three little bones, the anvil and stirrup and stuff, and then the, those little you know, things in the, the liquid chamber in there which vibrate, and then it sets up the sodium-potassium change in the nervous, you know, nerves that go up to the auditory center, and I say, pink elephant, or Golden Gate Bridge. And you can picture it. That is completely insane. It's wild. <laughs> it is. Nobody knows how that happens, really. It is so mysterious. <laughs> Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> wow. And then your mind, your consciousness, pictures it. Disney, pink elephant, what was that? Dumbo, right. Flying elephants. I mean, it's insane. So, but speech can be associated with that which is uh, the basis for suffering and harm. First noble truth, there's suffering. But it can also be associated with that which liberates. And here's the Buddha's language. Here's words that liberate. And words that liberate, he says, are words that are kind, that are true, so have to be both true and kind, not like brutal honesty, that are spoken in due season, that are to the benefit of another person. This is why, this is using this interpersonal awareness that we share so that we benefit and bless one another. And that's what is an expression of awakening. Plus which, the other doesn't work very well. I mean, but you think about it. What would happen, I mean, I know there have been movies about this, what would happen if people actually told the truth in this world? Oh my God, for instance, a lot of industries would be gone, advertising would be out, politics would be completely gone, you know. It's astonishing, right? Just to think about that. John invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, John couldn't, um, during the meal his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd been suspicious of a relationship between them, and she became even more intrigued and curious watching them interact. And John kind of saw the look on her face and said, you know, I know what you're thinking, Mom, but I assure you Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, you know, ever since your mom came over to dinner, I've been able to find that beautiful silver soup ladle we put out. You don't suppose she did something with it, do you? He said, I don't know, I'll email her. Dear mom, I don't know if you did anything with it or not, but somehow this beautiful silver soup ladle has been missing since you came over. And she wrote him back, said, dear son, I'm not saying you do sleep with Carrie, and I'm not saying you don't, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the silver ladle by now. <laughs> Love, mom, and the title of this is Don't Lie to Your Mother. It doesn't work, you know. Every gun that is made, this is General Dwight David Eisenhower, every warship launched, every rocket fired, signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed, 
This world in armaments is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life at all in a true sense. Under the cloud of threatening one another with war, it is humanity hanging on a cross of iron. And we, the U.S., are the largest exporter of killing machines and weapons in the world. We don't even talk about it. We're worried we're not safe, and we're selling gazillions of dollars of killing machines to the world, and now we don't feel so safe. Honey. So, speech is incredibly powerful to tell the truth to yourself, to speak it in the right way, in the right season to others, and then it leads to what's called wise livelihood, another expression of the awakened heart. You know, and wise livelihood means that you act in livelihood in ways you don't sell weapons, and you don't sell drugs, and you don't do things that bring harm through your livelihood to others. But instead, you offer yourself to life from this awakened presence in whatever gift you have. And it can be anything. It can be a business person, or a teacher, or a farmer, or an artist. Um, but your offering is with mindfulness and love. It's the, it's the offering of awakening. Thomas Merton, best-selling author, contemplative poet, he says, if you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. But if you write for men and women, you may make some money and may give someone a little joy and you make a little noise in the world for a little while. But if you write for your own self-promotion, you can read what you yourself have written, and after 10 minutes, you'll be so disgusted, you'll wish you were dead. <laughs> and really, what he's talking about is the spirit in which we do our work. It's like when Martin Luther King said, if a man sweeps streets for, the living, for a living, he should sweep the way um, Beethoven you know, wrote his poetry, and Beethoven composed his music, and Nureyev danced, or whatever that metaphor was that there is a dignity and a presence that we can use with our words or with our actions that express the liberated heart. And in the same way, right speech, right livelihood, right action, which Trudy talked about last night, in some way is the action that doesn't cause harm. but rather the action that brings awakening, brings care, brings blessing to this world. And she went through those five beautiful trainings or expressions of wise action, you know, to have a reverence for life, to not misuse speech, not to take or steal things, to take care with the things of this world, to not misuse sexuality and intoxicants. Um, we live in what's been called an addicted society. And the addicted society has all these ways to keep you busy and numbed out. Speedy, looking at the shows, looking on the internet, all the things that keep you, so you don't have to face the fact that the world is a mess, that the climate is, you know, poaching us, that there are grain elevators full of food here and hungry children there. 
It distracts us from the things in the world that in some way modern consumer society doesn't want to deal with. You know it's true. And so to have the dignity of awakening, this Eightfold Path, is to step out of the addiction of the world or wise, you know, wise action not causing harm through the misuse of sexuality, Trudy talked about, making it conscious. Because we're sexual beings. It's a kind of wild thing, isn't it? Actually, it's completely bizarre. I mean, having a human body already is a trip. I don't know how you got in there, but it is. You know, you have a hole in one end in which you stuff dead plants and animals and grind them up with the bones that hang down and glug them through the tube. And you have these round globe things that, you know, capture certain light frequency waves and make pictures and the ears that stick out, in my case, quite a lot. And we talked about hearing and speech, you know. And, and, and then the way you ambulate, you fall one direction, catch yourself as a bipede, and you fall the next direction. It's bizarre. It is. And you have little patches of fur, some left anyway in some cases, right? And a little vestigial tail. I mean, you got this animal body, right? And then you make love or have sex. Now, sex is a very cool thing, and it's great. And making love is wonderful. But if you ever pause for a moment and take a look, it's also really weird. It is. The whole act is. And then, you know, a little squirt here and a little egg there, and all of a sudden you have another human being coming out of somebody's body. I mean, this is, this is wild. This is incarnation. It just says, pay attention to this mystery and use it in a way that doesn't cause harm. I mean, I usually say to people, how many people in the room have made idiots of yourself in your sexual relations? Don't bother, <laughs> right? It can cause harm and confusion, or it can bring joy, pleasure, connection, awakening. And the whole of the Eightfold Path is the invitation to live a noble and dignified, and more than anything, a liberated life. And that's really what you're training and practicing and remembering and awakening here, to live in the reality of the present, where you are, with loving awareness, with a free heart and a clear vision, and then to bring your gift to the world. Somehow you're here, you might as well do something cool with it, which you are, each in your own unique and mysterious and beautiful way. So one last little reading, and then we'll have a time for walking. This from Laurie Anderson. In the Tibetan map of the world, the world is a circle. And at the center, there's an enormous mountain guarded by four gates. And when they draw a map of the world, they draw the map in sand, and it takes months. And then when the map is finished, they say some prayers, erase it, and throw the sand in the nearest river. Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra. 
which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take, and before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life, what have I done? This is a disaster. And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough? I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony, and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes, and I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me and have a cappuccino right now and talk? And so we went to this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before, so he kept talking faster and faster. <laughs> and I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me, please? And he was really being practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said, the mind is a wild white horse, and when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, just walk away. And another thing, keep your eyes open. Find the right road. And one more thing, get moving, because it's finally time to get on the path and take yourself home. So here you are, on the path, in your home, which is yourself. And it's an honor to sit together in this way. Let's sit for a moment. There's about half an 